0: you've all been waiting for, isn't it? (laughs) Um, This this call to love one another, the hallmark of Christian discipleship. Jesus said, "If if they will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Uh, How do you really feel about that? You know, you get this idea, I think, that the early church in in their love for one another was a demonstration of of what Christ was like and people were drawn to them and it's this wonderful picture by the way you love one another people will know that you're my disciples how is that for you? how's that working out? do you feel like someone can look at you and see the love that you have for others and, and know this must be a disciple of Christ? how's that how's that going how are you doing you know the the two greatest commandments that jesus said gave us to love god and to love one another as we love ourselves how how are you doing in loving god how are you doing in in loving one another and in loving yourself little moment of honesty just you could turn to each other and discuss it but i I, I won't get you to i once was on a retreat and um we did a sort of little kind of it was a bit of fun really and we asked people that question how are you doing in loving one another and we broke it down into what what are the ingredients of loving one another and we sort of did this little graph um so loving one another what are the things involved, and, and we've looked at them, the, some of the the one another's, so forgiving one another, bearing with one another, confessing your sins to one another, all what goes to make it, make it up. And then we asked people to rate themselves, you know, one out of ten, and to score how they were doing on all these different areas. And um, I think we kind of knew it was going to be an invitation to depression. And... Uh, <laughs> And I, I maybe it's just me, but I know sometimes, as Gary said, we read the scriptures and, and we're faced up with the reality of actually, I do quite often fall short, and it I'm faced with my my own failings. And um, uh, there's one writer that I like. He he said it, it, he if only Jesus had had chosen something else <laughs> that would be the hallmark of discipleship, and he says it's one of the most depressing things that he finds in his Christ following, this call to love one another. Have you ever had that time where you've resolved to, to really be nice to that person at work or that person that you don't like who just gets on your nerves and then the very next day you you completely blow it. And so we go back to, to trying, again, to trying harder to, to love one another. And... Um, I think what we wanted to do with this this little game of of the graph, if you like, was was to illustrate the fact that it it can be one of those areas where we just don't feel we do very well. And we judge ourselves. And we kind of assume that God probably judges us too in the same way as we judge ourselves. At least I do. Um, So the question really is at this point, isn't it, how... How do we come to do better, if you like, do better? How do we come to, to love, to, to embrace this commandment that Jesus has given us, to love one another as we love ourselves? What is it that helps us in that? And I don't really think it is greater self-discipline. I, I've tried that, and probably you have too. You know, this thing, I've got to try harder I don't think that's at the heart of, of the transformation that really enables us to love one another. I think what's at the heart of the transformation that enables us to love is knowing ourselves to be loved at an ever deeper level. I don't think there's any other way. And yet it is so countercultural. We are so conditioned to think that. If I get it right, then God will love me. And when I don't get it quite so right, that's when God doesn't love me quite so much. I think that's somehow ingrained in our thinking. Um, And of course, that's completely upside down. We get it completely upside down. God doesn't love us when we change. He loves us so that we can change. And in in this call to love one another, the starting place is going right back, like Gary said, to know ourselves loved. I think you've got that scripture there on your handout. We love because God first loved us. I don't think God wants me to try to be more loving. I think he wants me to absorb more of his love so that love then flows out of me. That is what happens when I know myself to be loved. There's a reservoir of love within me out of which I can embrace others. I think it was Good Friday. There was that that lovely hymn, uh, My Song is Love Unknown. Um, My Saviour's love for me, love to the, how's it go? Loveless. Loveless shown. That I might lovely be that's at the heart of the gospel this the song of love that God sings over us that me the loveless might become lovely might become one who can love and um, I, I saw that today I was skyping with a lady who's out on the mission field and um, she'd just been away on retreat, and had an amazing time, amazing few days, and, and God had really met with her, she knew it, she knew it had been significant, she got back home and just got into the, fact into the ordinary everyday run of things, and she knew she totally missed living out in the way she wanted to, from what God had, had just done. And I looked at her face, and I could see the disappointment in her face, I could see the pain, and... And how upset she was at, at just her own behavior, her own failings to to live up to what she knew. And she had failed. <laughs> and we kind of talked about it. And she she herself begin, began to get a glimpse. It, it's in that place where I am faithless. That's Romans, that God is faithful. And, and we talked around, did she dare believe that? Did she dare believe that in the place where she knew she'd failed, what mattered was God's love for her? Could she be open to receiving it where she felt most unacceptable? And she got it. It was a lovely moment as we're dialoguing there. I've got the computer screen in front of me. And I saw it on her face. I saw her light up. I saw the look in her eyes change when suddenly she realized... I'm trying out of my own efforts to get it right. But I've got it the wrong way around. And, and, and it's God meeting me in the place where I want to reject myself. And, and she, she received God's love. And, and her day changed in that moment. This guy David Benner um, that I was talking about, he, he says this, Embarking on the journey of Christian spiritual transformation is enrolling in the divine school of love. And our primary assignment in this school is not so much to study and practice as letting ourselves be deeply loved by our Lord. So perhaps the better question is, how are you doing on letting yourself be deeply loved by your Lord? Because that's where transformation will start. Ephesians 5.2, in the message version, it says this, Mostly what God does is love you. Isn't that nice? Mostly what God does is love you. And you are deeply loved, each one of you. This is you, singular, not you, plural. We can hear it as you, plural, and we know it. But to hear it as you, singular, you, are deeply loved is different. And I, as Gary said, I wanted to take us back to where we started. Do you remember these three circles? Anybody tell me what, what they represented? Very good. This is body, soul, spirit. Biblical picture of man. We're, we're a tripart being. We've got the body and then we have a soul. What's in our soul? What's the soul made up of? Thank you. Emotions. What else? Will. Yeah, that's there too, isn't it? One more thing. It's a good old memory test. This is where Alzheimer's sets in. <laughs> Thought, um, our mind. If you like, our thoughts, our beliefs. Um, so. This is all of us. We've got a body, we've got a soul, and we've got a spirit. And we said at the beginning that the the deepest part, the part that defines our identity in Christ is our spirit. So that scripture that, that Gary read out earlier where the Father says, we, we, or Jesus said, I and the Father will come and make our home with you. Where does that happen? It's obviously not in my body. And it's not in my emotions. It's not an emotional thing. It's here at the level of my spirit where I'm united with Christ, where the Father and Jesus have come and made his home with me. That's where that happens. And this is what determines my identity. Romans 8:28. The Spirit of God testifies with our spirits that we are God's children. That's about who we are. His beloved children adopted as his children. So... So that's that's what um, what defines us, and if we are trying to to, to know our belovedness according to our emotions, then that, that's not going to work because there's days when we know we loved, and there's days when it really doesn't feel very like it. And if we're relying on on What our thoughts tell us. Well, there's days when our thoughts even will will tell us, "Yes, I I know God loves me." But there's other days when it just doesn't work. They don't. They tell tell us a whole bunch of other things, and we collect, we connect more to some of the lies that we've believed about ourselves. And do you remember? um, Do you remember this little sheet that we gave out? I was so proud. Avril's got it stuck on her fridge. (laughs) Isn't that good? Truth is what God says. No matter what I feel, what I think, no matter what others think or what others say, truth is God's word. So you see, the fact that that I'm, I'm deeply loved has been demonstrated by Jesus on the cross for each one of us. It's a, it's a done deal. His death for me on the cross is the mark of how loved I am, how valuable I am. What greater thing can there be than the, the Father giving his Son to, to as a demonstration for how loved I am. So you are deeply loved. And... Um, as we go back to the foundations, oops, God's plan A, you've got that there on your handout. Sorry, I made a mess of that. God's plan A. And we talked about how right back in the garden, God created Adam and Eve. So the space there is for you to draw this in if you want to. And, and his purpose was that in relationship with him, Adam and Eve would know these things about themselves. They would know that they were loved. They would know that they were acceptable. They would know that they had worth. And they'd know that they were safe. They'd know that they had significance. Because they were in relationship with him, because the very breath of God had filled their lungs and they lived in in intimate relationship with him. And his desire then was that out of that foundation of knowing themselves loved, knowing that they had value simply because they were, they could then share love with one another and share love out into family. And Adam could express who he was into the realm of work I'm generalizing here, but you know, Eve too, in, into the, the work she was given to do, and Adam into family. And they, they could be this expression of love and life shared amongst his creation. But of course, we know what happened was the fall. And so they were cut off from life in God, weren't they? They were banished from the Garden of Eden. And they were then separated from God by their sins. And this is all of our stories. We, we come into the world in that place, separated from God because of our sins. And all of these things we talked about huge, become a huge question mark. Am I lovable? Am I acceptable? Do I have worth? Do I have value? And without this connection to God, where do we go to find out the answer to those things? don't we go to these things? So Eve begins to look to Adam to tell her who she is. Don't we do that in our relationships? I need you to tell me that I'm okay and vice versa. Adam looks to Eve to to tell her and, and Adam begins to look down here to work so that work tells me if I'm any good or not, and we begin to get into the whole competitive, com, um, comparing kind of lifestyle. And very often we see that situation where, you know, family need need to make me feel okay. I, I'm looking to my, my siblings, my children, to, to kind of feed my own sense of self-worth. Because we've lost this connection, so where else can we go? Th- these questions shout. <laughs> And we have to find answers. So we go to these places. And often I can end up living with this unconscious demand that other people in my relationships need to tell me if I'm okay or not. And that's what I'm looking for. Um, My sense of worth is invested into the friendships around me. Does this make any sense? Can anyone identify a little bit? Um, You see... Until really, well, let's leave it at that. God's plan B, what was God's plan B? There's a very interesting passage in Genesis 3. Which you've got there on your handout. I think it was Chris who said last time we need to get more back into Genesis. So I thought I'd, I'd score some brownie points by I'm just a bit gutted he's not here really. But uh, <laughs> there is so much truth in those, those early chapters of Genesis. So, what happened after the fall? What, what did God do? How did he respond to Adam and Eve? What you've got here is I think what we often call the curse that we're kind of familiar with, aren't we? What, what God, God's response. So first of all, he curses the snake, um, which is the slightly earlier bit. But then look at what he says to the woman. I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And then to Adam. He said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded, you must not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you'll eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you'll eat food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken. For dust you are to dust you will return. What's that about? What is he doing there. We kind of think it's punishment but I I think there's a different way to see it. Because you see, (laughs) what he's doing is thwarting all of these ways that Adam and Eve set about to then try and find life outside of God. So he makes this difficult, the relationship. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And he makes this difficult. You'll work by the sweat of your brow and in pain you'll have child, you, you will um, bear children. And so in, it, it's consequences in a way. He's allowing them to experience the consequences of, of their actions. But what's his heart in it? He's wanting to make these ways of seeking life difficult. For what reason? So they turn to him. So they turn to him. So they come back. To look for these things in God, so they realize that this doesn 't work because it 's never meant to work, and it never will work. This will never be enough when we live like this we're we 're trying to milk acceptance from people who can 't ever give us enough acceptance it 's only God who can who can instill and and bestow on me the the acceptance that I really need. So yeah, he wanted them to turn back and God's plan B is the restoration of plan A that they would find in God again all of these needs and they're genuine, valid, valid needs that we have. He made us with these needs so that he could be the one to meet them. And so we're restored to the tree of life, which is Christ. It's a bit of a mess, this diagram, isn't it? But God's plan A is is the, the restoration. Sorry, God's plan B is the restoration of plan A. Does that make sense? And you see, it's here at the level of our identity that these needs are met. Love, acceptance. I'm made acceptable. I'm not just given acceptance. I, I am, by the work of the cross, made acceptable. We I think it's Ephesians 1 6. We are made acceptable in the beloved. We're made acceptable by nothing of our own doing by Christ and his work on our behalf. We are the beloved. We have immense worth, so much so that Christ died for us. We have significance and we're safe in his love. So you see, as I, as I start to come home to these truths, then I start to become free to release some of my demands that others be to me who I Want them to be to me. I lived most of my life like that, I think, looking for people to be to me who I wanted and needed them to be to me. And it was, it was subtle, but they were there, the, the demands that, that people prove and mirror to me what I need, what I need. But if we know this, then you see, we're free to let others be to me who they want to be to me and relationships begin to change and this business of expectations to meet my need it is there subtly in so many of our relationships and it causes huge conflict you know I, I, I'm looking all the time how someone looks at me what they do for me what they buy me for my birthday how many times they invite me for dinner the, the, how many times they phone me um, I, I'm there, watching to see the proof that I'm lovable, and it's always the wrong place, and it will always create conflict, and enough will never be enough. And, and as we come home to the fact that we're beloved, we are loved. That Jesus died for us. How more? How else can I say it? <laughs> you are loved. And as you rest in that, and let it be the thing that defines you, then relationships will begin to change. And we become freer. And we become freer to serve, because we don't have to prove anything. We become freer to love without needing others to do anything back for us. And that's what Jesus knew, wasn't it? That wonderful moment when he washes the disciples' feet, and he says... Or John writes of him. Jesus knew where he'd come from and he knew where he was going, back to the Father. So he he put the robe around him and he, he knelt and he washed their feet. He had such immense security that he could do the most humblest of things, and he was amongst them as a servant, and he was free to be that. And we begin to discover that for ourselves, too. We begin to find the freedom for which Christ set us free. <laughs> to love one another as we love ourselves, as we validate what is true of us. And, and that kind of validation, it's not going to come in our soul. It's not going to come in the area of our emotions. And it's not necessarily going to come in our, in our thoughts and our beliefs about ourselves. God is at work to renew our minds. There's a transformation of our thinking that he brings about from the inside, from the inside out as we validate with our wills what's now true about me. So, how does that happen? How, how does that begin? to work itself out in our life and you've got I think on the last is it over the page? Yes. Um, This little title, The Gift of Misery. (laughs) Probably not the gift most of us want to receive but you see I think this is the place where we really start to learn what defines us because on a good day it's just easy to know that we're loved. On a good day we know God loves us. On a bad day, that's when the question marks spring into life and we wonder. And we, we notice the fact that your kids haven't rung you for three weeks and, and, or you shouted at the kids three times that day, you know, whatever it is, when the question marks spring into life, those are the times when we have the opportunity to say, what what am I going to let define me? What am I going to validate today? Is it the externals, what's being mirrored back to me from outside? Or is there a deeper place that I can, if you like, come home to? There's a quote there from a writer called Brennan Manning. Define yourself radically as one beloved by God. It's radical, it is radical. It, and it's not easy it's not easy it's the greatest challenge of our lives i think to to define myself as one loved by God when it doesn't when i don't feel like it, and perhaps my behavior hasn't merited it. <laughs> define yourself radically as one beloved by God god's love for you and his choice of you constitute your worth that's it. What makes me worthy? Not the great things I do, not how much I love other people. It's his love of me. His choice of me that constitutes my worth. Accept that and let it become the most important thing of your life. And, you know, there is going to still be pain to grieve. There's painful things that happen in our lives and we need to grieve. I think that's part of forgiveness is recognizing things have really hurt and I, I need to allow myself to grieve that. But we, we need to grieve the right pain and, and not the wrong pain about sometimes what that event tells me about me. Grieving the right pain with God because he's there for me, loving me in it. Not grieving the wrong pain without God, which is the pain of what I tell myself about me sometimes and how I shut myself off from God because of what I think then he thinks about me. Does that make sense? <laughs> so yeah there's tough things in life but, but on those days when God chooses to bestow on us the gift of misery <laughs> or life, life has its hard moments that's when we have an opportunity to decide what, what will I believe What will I validate? What will I put my trust in? Um, I'm always moved, really, by the story of Peter, who betrayed Jesus. It's Easter, and we've been looking at that in a way. There was Peter, you know, swearing, I will never betray you. And so, so confident, because he loved Jesus. He couldn't conceive that he, he could ever betray the one he loved so much. And then just a few short is it days, hours later, there he is. And the cock crows. But Jesus said to him, Satan has asked to sift you, but I have prayed. What did Jesus pray? Remember? I've prayed for you, that your faith won't fail. Isn't that interesting? I've prayed for you that your faith won't fail. That's the prayer of Jesus. Did his faith fail? He failed. It's interesting, isn't it? He did fail, utterly. Had to be the most shameful, de- despairing moment of his life. He failed. But what, So what was the faith Jesus was talking about in that? It wasn't the faith that he could... It, faith in himself... <laughs> Peter's faith within was, in, was in himself, in his own ability never to let Jesus down. I think the faith Jesus was talking about was faith to believe that he was still beloved, even though he could do that. And, and there's that moment when Jesus looks at him. He, the cock crows three times and Jesus looks at him. Don't you... Wonder what that look communicated. Surely it had to be love. Surely it had to be acceptance. (laughs) I think that's the faith that Jesus is looking for in us. Faith to believe that we are loved, even at our worst. That's the faith he prays for. So, in these last, we've just got seven, eight minutes or so, I'd like us just to sit. um, We are sitting. (laughs) I'd like to just lead us in a bit of a meditation, really. Um, Just so we can sit in God's presence and perhaps become aware of this love that he has for us. So, you might like to Just make yourself comfortable, maybe put your stuff down, (coughs) close your eyes, and just relax in your chair, take a few deep breaths. And just, as you're sitting, notice your body. It's part of who we are as tripartite beings. We have a body. Become aware, perhaps, of any, any aches or pains and notice them. And Perhaps feel how the chair is bearing your weight and allowing you to sit. And just allow yourself to relax. We often carry all sorts of messages about our bodies. Sometimes they come way back from childhood. Sometimes conscious, we're conscious of them because of the world's standards and pictures. What's acceptable, what's not acceptable to others or just in our own eyes. And yet our bodies are this tremendous gift that enable us to be in the world, to be present. So just in whatever way feels feels appropriate, acknowledge your body right now. So bodies that enable us to be the, the feet and the hands of Jesus in this world. And then... Moving perhaps to the next level are our, our souls where we have our minds and our emotions. And just for a moment think perhaps of all the different emotions you've felt, perhaps just even in these last two hours of being here in, in this building. We can have such ups and downs or in the course of the day. The emotions that have come and gone and come again. And they're part of you. And again they're God's gift to us. They're what brings colour to life. And also again we can we can label our emotions good, bad. We can have judgments about them and about ourselves because of them. But actually they're just emotions. We're not our emotions. We're people who have emotions. So just acknowledge to yourself, for yourself, those, the gift of emotions. And then our minds, and again, probably all sorts of thoughts have come and gone, even through the last few moments, the last hour, the last couple of hours. And again, we can carry all sorts of messages about our minds. But we're fearfully and wonderfully made. Our minds are incredible. Scientists haven't yet plumb the depths of all that our minds can do. And again, it's part of God's gift to us. So just acknowledge the gift of your mind a moment. And then the deepest part of us, our spirits, where God dwells, Allow yourself to settle into that most centered part of you. The deeper identity where God's spirit testifies with your spirit that you are his child. You are the beloved. You have been made Acceptable, complete, nothing lacking. The fullness of the Godhead dwells in you. Jesus and the Father have come and made their home in you. And that's what most deeply defines you. So let's just rest in that place for about a minute and then I'll pray and close. Father, thank you that the cross has brought us home. We've become estranged in so many ways from you, from ourselves, from one another and the cross brings us home, home to ourselves, to our true selves. Home into the body of Christ. Home into true sonship and true daughtership. And home to love. Home to being the beloved. Would you remind us, as we go from this place into the rest of the week, time and time again, Lord, would you remind us of this place we can come home to. We can't do it for ourselves. So we turn to you and we say, Lord, do for us what we can't do for ourselves. Time and time again, do for us what we can't do for ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.